On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Darren Hype Benson. He is the VP of Engineering at DroneUp. We're going to be talking about Agile and a lot of the fundamentals around how it could be used better, the spirit versus the letter of the law, and sometimes how process overhead is not what you want. Darren, thanks for being on the podcast to chat. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So I always like to start with two things. One is to understand who your current employer is. Tell us a little bit about DroneUp and then also just what are some of the responsibilities that you have as a VP of engineering? So the two main aspects of the company I work for, DroneUp, is one is the delivery side, which is trying to figure out ways of using drones to do deliveries of products or maybe eventually like food delivery, that kind of stuff. And then um, the other side is our kind of enterprise solution side, which is taking enterprise, you know, businesses or maybe even small government, local governments that have missions that require someone who owns a drone to be able to fly around, take pictures, that kind of thing, and deliver that to the client. So in that model, it's a little bit more like Uber, where a client might post a mission and then a pilot who owns a drone. And usually these are like the more expensive drones, not necessarily the kind you get the store. And like they'll say, oh, I'll take that mission and they'll fly around, take some pictures and send it. And then as the VP of engineering, I uh, largely, I kind of oversee all the, obviously all the software engineering development that happens in the company, both the internal tools that we build and the user-facing ones. And I work very closely with product to understand roadmaps, resource needs. But I guess in general, my number one job as an engineering leader is to be an advocate for the engineers and to make sure that they have everything they need to succeed, that they enjoy coming to work every day. And ideally reducing the amount of context switching they have to do and creating a good culture, I guess. Absolutely. So in terms of, you know, overall experience, I know you've done a lot of work with Agile Scrum. I know you're passionate about being the advocate for the engineers, obviously, you know, taking care of the uh, roadblocks and making sure they're doing their work. When you're kind of looking back over the years and seeing the different evolutions of the way Agile and Scrum has been used, do you have any preference in terms of how closely following that, you know, spirit versus the letter of the law? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and yeah, I think like to preface that I have only been at drone up for like three and a half months. And so, and honestly, it's been one of the roles that I've had that's been, I've been given the most autonomy. So a lot of my sort of sentiments about, you know, agile scrum, that kind of thing, where your question's going is definitely mostly based on, you know, the previous places I've worked. So like agile in general, feels to me much more like a set of guidelines or a set of values that people should sort of derive the policies they put in place, the processes they put in place, right? It's sort of like, think about these values, which actually, I think that's a, in general, that's like a big problem that a lot of people have in the workplace is they have a knee-jerk reaction to a specific policy or specific methodology, but they haven't necessarily tied that back to a value. And if you don't tie back to a set of values, you can find yourself in being a hypocrite unintentionally where you're like, well, I say this, but I do this. Right. And one example of that is, you know, I remember being in a meeting one time and early on in the meeting, we were talking about how, you know, how important agile is. And then not five minutes later, you know, and again, the first tenet of agile we were talking about was people in interactions over process and tools. And, you know, like I was about to say, it's five minutes later, somebody's saying, well, that's not what the scrum book says, Darren. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I thought I thought it was people and interactions over process and tools. And I think that's kind of where the Agile and Scrum methodologies have sort of taken us. Agile was sort of like this kicking off point. And then Scrum became this more rigid set of principles that 
And instead of meetings that people are very passionate about that they'd be run in a certain way. It's kind of funny. My girlfriend's reading this book right now. That's all about human psychology. And we've been talking about it and she's talking about, you know, basically what it's about is how people latch onto things that make them feel safe. Right. And they would sort of categorize things that make us feel safe and things that make us feel unsafe. And if you try to pull away the things that make us feel safe, we have this just emotional reaction, right? Anything that happens to us, it hits our reptile brain first before it hits our logical brain. And so it's very fascinating how you'll, you'll be in those situations where you're trying to sort of disconnect the way people think about things and get them back to a set of values, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it's tricky. It takes time, but a lot of it's just sort of reminding people, let's start with a sense of why, right? Another way I've kind of been describing it at work lately is Peter F. Drucker has his quote about how leadership is doing the right things and management is doing things right. And I think in a lot of ways, that's also sort of when you're working tactically of we have to get stuff done now versus strategy, what are we doing in the future, right? And when it's tactical, you almost have to lean on that. Well, let's just do things right, right? Let's follow the process that's already established. But when it's thinking, you know, what do we want to be doing in the future? It needs to go through some sort of leadership framework, right? And I'm saying leadership framework to steal Drucker's term of start with the why, right? Which again, you could almost go with Simon Sinek's power of why, right? Google, actually, if you go look up problem solving at Google, you'll find a great blog post of the five steps of how they solve problems, which again, follows the same kind of pattern. And it's start with the why or the problems that you're trying to solve. The way I translate it, the next step is define the North Star of where you're trying to get to, right? And then, you know, charter your way to that, right? What are all the steps you have to do? And so it's the same thing with Scrum. Like, okay, before we go say that we care about this meeting or that tool or this thing, let's go back to our values. Let's go back to the people and interactions that we want to see. How do we want the teams to be talking? What does it look like generally without even naming a single tool or anything or an integration or whatever? Just say, what does it look like when people are in a meeting and they're doing this, right? What are the general responsibilities that people are taking on? And then from there, you go ideally go look for a tool that does it or go set up a process that does that. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I think, you know, when you're looking at the agile, you know, principles, it is more of a spirit. I think it was more of a, hey, this is the spirit of what's been wrong. Hey, we're not, we're not reverse engineering a bridge. You know, bridges are great. Engineers can reverse engineer what a bridge should be. Then they go build it because there's no fixing it. Software comes along. We call it computer science. Still not sure exactly where the science comes from, but it's computer oh, science. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but uh, everything's a new invention. I mean, shoot, you could probably build the same application in the same software or IT organization. And if you did it with the two different groups of engineers, they'll probably be potentially different products slightly, like different versions. So I always look at it and go, there's a bit of you know, creativity, a bit of inventiveness that goes into software, which is very hard to estimate. I mean, it's very hard to accurately, and that was, you know, downfall, waterfall, you know, I'm sure there's you know, podcasts on that. But when you're talking about the rigidness of maybe layering something like Scrum, I think the gap of where the agile principles were to actually handling the implementation, there had to be a bridge. But I think obviously Scrum is one you know version. I know there's other you know flavors of uh, agile that people could be applying. But to what extent, I guess the question I was going to ask is to what extent when you implement Scrum, and I know the rituals are super important, do you want that to be a little bit more flexible and malleable and adopted to the team? Or, hey, these are the rituals. We focus on the rituals because that's what Scrum calls for? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great question. 
Because the where a lot of people's intentions are coming from when they want to put a rigid scrum process in place is they want to have predictability and accountability, right? And in general, kind of management to me, the way I view it is that they're constantly balancing autonomy with accountability, right? I want to, and actually, you know, just to sidestep for a second and talk about the importance of autonomy is if listeners watch Daniel Pink's TED Talk or what, yeah, on YouTube, you can find it. Uh, Daniel Pink's TED Talk about the three pillars of motivation. And he really, in the TED Talk, he focuses on autonomy and he gives a few examples of where you can benefit from that autonomy and uh, companies like Wikipedia that sort of took advantage of that. But anyway, so that autonomy is really important because if people feel trusted, right, if you give people ownership over the process, right, you say, hey, guys, this is your scrum process. This isn't us telling you. This is you. We're handing it over to you. You need to own it. And honestly, that's how it started. It started with people in their garage, post-it notes and all that kind of stuff. It started with people owning it themselves. And the funny thing is, is over the decades that it's, you know, it's transformed into this thing where now it's more of like a, it's almost like a factory line of like, you're getting these tickets and I'm tracking everything you're doing with velocity and everything. There's the intangible side effect of this, which is sad to hear is that you, you be in a meeting and you hear people say, the engineers don't have any ownership of anything. It's like, well, of course they don't have ownership over anything. Like you're not giving them ownership of anything. You're telling them what to do. You're telling them the process. Of course, they're not necessarily speaking up and using stand-up in the way that they should, because to them, it just feels like their boss is coming in or somebody else who tells them what to do is coming in and being like, what'd you do yesterday? And what are you doing today? Right? One of the most magical moments I've seen is when I, in my career at engineering management, was when I turned over stand-up and retro to the engineers and actually saw them take ownership of that and actually do all the, like care about all the things that I cared about in the meeting. And I didn't have to train them to care about it. In fact, if I had trained them how to care about it, they probably would have repelled against me and been like, you stop telling us what to care about and what to think, you know, the backfire effect. And so by giving them, yeah, of course they messed up a couple of times, right? There was probably some standups that didn't go well. There was probably a couple of retros that didn't go well, but then they learned that lesson, right? So autonomy is this like really important part of the equation that actually can create a really awesome engineering culture. The other side of that though is, and you know, you were asking me earlier, like my role as VP of engineering. And I guess the one very important part that I left out is while I'm also an advocate, I also have to care about the business. I have to make sure we're meeting business objectives, Right. But I want to figure out a way to do that that also creates ownership and also provides autonomy. And I think that that's where our imagination has... We've kind of lost the... Again, not going with a set of values. We're not imaginative enough to think through, well, how do we do both, right? So instead, we lean on you know, probably what some consulting agency came up with of like, this is how you have to do Scrum. You know, Probably some group like McKinsey or Bain Capital was like, this is how you take an engineering team and just make them incredibly effective is you just got to track points and you got to track velocity and all this. And da, da, da. I used to be that way. When I worked at a previous employer, I was very much a scrum tyrant. In fact, I know our department was known as the most efficient department. Everybody looked at our cool scrum charts that had all the points and we were tracking. I mean, I had it down to how many points per day a person was able to do. It was like, oh, this person's last month was 1.5 and CBOS, now they're up to 1.6. Isn't that great? But all it was doing was engineers were just sort of, we were like tracking the inefficient stuff and putting points on it. as like, oh, this is an unplanned ticket for this mistake we made, right? And so we're just sort of making the velocity and the points all look right. And so we seem like a very accountable team. We seem like a very effective team. But 
on the backside of it, the intangible side effects of running teams this way, just nobody was seeing, right? Nobody cared to look, right? It was just like, oh, yep. I like the numbers I'm seeing on that chart. So I feel good. But then not reaching out to engineers and saying, hey, how do you feel at work? Or do you feel like you're given autonomy? Do you feel like you're allowed to be creative? Which, but going back to just side note, again, what you said about science, I also think that's another element of it, which is engineers needing to get back to treating their work a little bit more scientifically, right? And a little bit more logically and less. I think that there is a really enjoyable creative aspect of software engineering. But I also think that the problem solving skill, the science skill of it is actually that thing that levels you up closer to like being an architect as opposed to just like, oh, I know Ruby on Rails really well. It's like, no, I need you to come into a meeting and solve problems really well. Right. I need you to also explain different solutions to a business minded person. Right. And again, that's another form of accountability is science can be a very accountable tool for us to use uh, in the workplace. I guess just add a question about, you know, you mentioned, you know, making sure you're driving as much accuracy as you could. How much overhead did that lay on top of what you were doing? What, to, you know, was there overhead to the team to get to the numbers that you were driving in that scenario? I mean, there's tangible overhead and then there's intangible overhead. So the tangible overhead was obviously like a bunch of meetings, probably, you know, a lot of roles again, like needing to be in lots of meetings to manage the team and make sure they're doing everything right. As opposed to me trusting them and again, letting them fail, letting them learn from their mistakes. So then I'm having to be in all these meetings, right. I'm having to scrum master 10 different teams, right. Cause I, I don't want to make a mistake. And then my boss is upset about it. Right. So I have to make sure I'm covering my ass. And then also I think the intangible, I mean, there's probably a few other tangible overhead costs as well, but the intangible side is, you know, there's a great study that found I did training with Paul Niven, who has a great book about OKRs. And um, he came and joined us for two days and trained us all about that. And um, he cited a study that found that the average unengaged employee costs a company $17,000, right? And I did the math like while we were in the meeting about the number of employees that we had. And I want to say that we had about 80 or 90 or something like that. And it came to about $1.5 million in the cost of lack of engagement. So you think about that, and then you think about a recent stat that came out that said that 80% of the American workforce is unengaged with where they work. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that it directly ties to, we have allowed processes at work to make us incredibly efficient. Actually, a worker productivity is at an all-time high. you know, And so it's not that we're working inefficiently. It's that we've sort of sucked out the joy, the autonomy part of work where it's like, hey, I'm going to give you a problem and I want to see if you can solve it, right? And I think points and velocity and all that kind of stuff, that is a way that people know that they see some sort of tracking and it make again, makes them feel safe. But there's like a million ways to skin that cat. I mean, part of it is if you actually give them ownership and let them make a mistake, engineers will start to learn those project management skills where they actually know, like, I really need to speak up and say something about this project or whatever, as opposed to just like waiting till the last day and then asking for an extra month, right? Once you create an accountability model that says, hey, I'm giving you an outcome I want to see. And yeah, you sure you check in regularly to see how it's going. You can do project syncs and all that, but I'm giving you an outcome to reach by the end of the quarter. If they don't hit that outcome at the end of the quarter, right? And all the other teams are, there's a lot of self-accountability, intrinsic accountability that hits that person who goes like, man, all the other teams, they all demoed really cool things. They all got a bunch of cool stuff done. And here I am over here. Our team didn't, I wasn't able to. 
it's not the end of the world. And one of the things I say at work all the time is SpaceX blows up rockets all the time and everybody goes, oh, well, it's, that happens, right? But whenever an engineer misses a sprint, it's like, you know, it's the end of the world. So people are going to make mistakes, but the idea is that they learn from them. They make the mistake. We let them learn from, we trust them then. If they repeat the mistake, then we have a real problem and we should talk to them. But still, it's give them that trust. And I promise all the listeners, viewers, that engineers will find a way. <laughs> I 100% agree with it. I think it's interesting because I think the larger component to this is when you decide to measure people's results in a certain way, that's the behavior you're driving. So this can be in recruiting, which I'm familiar with. It could be a software engineers. It could be somebody working at a you know, retail place. If you're driving specific metrics, people will adjust their behaviors to succeed with those metrics. If you're not measuring the right behaviors, they're just doing what they have to to make sure the boss is happy. And I think sometimes, you know, the question I'll, I'll ask is, when you are looking at some of this disconnect, obviously you have to report to a manager. That manager has to report to somebody else rolling up to the CTO, CEO. Everyone has to go up the chain. And I wonder how much of Agile and then within Scrum, we've been adjusting because where it's really working you know, that measures the right behavior. But when it's not working, we're potentially not measuring the right behavior. So we're adjusting the upchain component of reporting to fit. And then you have to go down and fit the process. Like, hey, you know what? We need to make sure we have an extra meeting to account for the right, you know, ritual, blah, 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 whatever that is. I mean, it could be a billion things the way we adjust things. But I think a lot of that behavior, especially rolling up into whoever you're reporting to, will then cause you to do what you need to do to make sure you have the right components. That's such an important point. And I think that one of the quick points I'll make is that before I get into a larger point is that we just have to always be questioning the intangible side effects of the choices we're making. And the bigger point I would make is, is about culture, which is I had a, a previous coworker of mine say that culture is an output. And I didn't really understand what he meant at the time. And the more I thought about it, it started to click for me, which is that there's all these cultural inputs at work, right? Scrum is an input, the CEO is an input, your manager is an input, your coworker is an input, your laptop's an input. Everything sort of bubbles up into how you feel at work or how everybody at work feels, right? Whenever you're noticing something in your culture that you don't like, like for instance, I mentioned the engineers don't have enough ownership, a cultural problem. Whenever you notice that, what you should be doing is sort of trying to reverse engineer back to what could be causing that, right? Yeah, as opposed to just getting frustrated and throwing blame and throwing shade at like some department or this team or that team. It's like, well, let's ask the why, right? And in, I mean, like in politics, we talk about this all the time, which is like this terrible incident happened. What are the things going on in society that could have led to this, right? It's sure we could say it's just this one thing it was bad parenting, but are there other things going on? There's socioeconomic things going on. And I think it's the same thing with culture in the workplace. What could have led to this? Could it be that our scrum is too rigid? Could it be that we have too many people babysitting the engineers and not giving them the autonomy? And I think that, that one of the biggest cultural inputs is the C-suite leadership, because however they're treating their VPs is how their VPs are treating their directors and how the directors are treating their managers. Because if I've got a C-suite person who's yelling at me about like, your team needs to be doing this, you need that is going to trickle down, right? So I do think that the leaders in tech companies need to be thinking about how Again, think about a set of values, right? And it's not enough to go do a core values exercise, right? You can have that. You can talk to death about how we want these four core values. But I think you have to build in a framework that actually constantly is questioning 
the leadership and are the leaders supporting those values, right? It is interesting to me that a lot of companies, we have a lot of top-down performance reviews, but there's not really any semblance. I mean, like, sure, you can say, oh, yeah, but there's like a an upstream review. But in my entire career, I've never seen those go anywhere. <laughs> like, they just sort of disappear, right? I do think back in the day, I remember reading an article about how Google would have very regular manager reviews, right? I don't know if they abandoned that. Maybe a bunch of managers complained and they stopped doing it. But I really love that idea. I think it's important to just... And granted, like sometimes your employees don't have the same context of everything that you're seeing. But to be frank, that's kind of your job to explain that to them, to give them that same context or to uplevel them with that context. But still, getting an opportunity to hear from your people and understand how maybe you're creating a culture that stresses them out. There's this hero complex that we have of like, somebody's going to come and solve this. Or if somebody has moved up the chain, they inherently must know more than anybody in the company about whatever. And it's like, no, like just because you're moving up the chain in a company does not make you a superhuman. You don't know everything. And you really should use bottom-up feedback to understand how you're doing how the company's doing. It's so funny because as you were asking your question, I kept thinking about how there's all this effort to track engineering output or, or points and all that. But wouldn't it be insanely more valuable to have a tracking system that tracked if all the moves we're making as a business is actually moving us in the right direction, right? It seems like as ubiquitous as Scrum is, you sh- it, like OKRs should be even more so, or, or not even OKRs, just any sort of framework that sort of make sure that we're doing things that benefit the business should be the thing that we focus on more. And I feel like if you do that, everything else sort of comes along with it, right? If we're tracking, hey, are we actually getting things out on time? Are we actually meeting business objectives? If you're tracking all that, like you don't really need to be worrying about points and velocity and all that because that'll come every quarter. You'll say like, hey, how do we do this quarter? You know? It's interesting. I, I think the bottom of feedback is I've rarely heard of many places that it really shines through. Right. Unless again, yeah, you must have a really good culture to allow that feedback and and have enough comfort in providing that that you're not gonna feel I don't know what the but not reprimanded because you're not always going to be reprimanded because it might be anonymous, but whether or not it actually, you know, makes a dent or actually provides any uh real tangible results. So you're like you're willing to go through the effort. But I agree with you. It's interesting. And I think some of what you mentioned in terms of you know the agile scrum and you know, some of the rigidity around it that we were talking about. I think the culture of that org, that engineering org as the VP of engineering, what you come in to find the accountability, the autonomy drives all the other processes to actually be the best version of Scrum that you can. Otherwise you turn it into some form of, you know, iterative development because somebody else is actually putting their two cents in and it's no longer Scrum. I mean, Scrum and iterative development, I mean, as it's, I'm sure there's people that could debate this far better than I could ever, but they are very similar. And it's, it depends on if the team is actually owning some of the roadmap or somebody's from the external telling them, we need this done by this time. And all of a sudden they go, well, let me fit that into the schedule. So I think, you know, especially as a VP of engineering or whoever's the leader of the engineering org, that's a culture that, and I don't know if it's a culture is the right word, but that's a tempo tone belief, whatever you want to call it, that set that everyone else can then feel comfortable to adhere to. Right. One of the things I try to challenge myself to do is to try to say yes to my people as much as I can. And it, and I, it pains me when I can't. Like when someone come, brings me some idea, an engineer brings me an idea and I have to be like, uh, no, it's not, it's not quite it. I mean, I, I largely by myself. I largely am like, 
that's on me. I was, if they didn't meet the outcome, I can't possibly blame them if I didn't give them an outcome. Right. Or if I didn't give good instructions. And I also think engineers in general, though, like my guys uh, drone up in a previous companies, engineers tend to, they get code reviews all the time. So they're always being given feedback of like, uh, I would change this. I would change that. So they may be more welcome to it. But I think for any leaders out there that are managing people that aren't engineers, and even if you are just be mindful of like, if you're not giving people outputs or outcomes that you want to see, then they're not, they're not going to be able to deliver that. You know, that's a fair point. I think a lot of times that is, you know, especially when it's not clear and you don't get the result you want, there's always some frustration. There's some lack of accountability as to who then is responsible when, you know, the developer can say, Hey, well, you weren't clear. The manager's like, I gave you direction. And it's like that ambiguity causes some of that rift. I guess, you know, touching on, on that and kind of maybe, you know, asking you uh, maybe one or two or three or whatever you want, but what are some of the typical things that when you reflect back on some of the, you know, optimal versus less than optimal agile scrum teams, are there things that stood out that you were like, Hey, you know what, these are areas in, in the retrospect component of life. You could look back and go, you know what, if we did this, you know, I would have seen better results. Have you as an engineering leader, you know, had those moments where you could identify those things? Oh yeah. Well, and it's like the only way that you grow is to fail. And I know that sounds hokey. It sounds like something you see on a poster, but it's just so fundamentally true that you have to make mistakes. Just like I said earlier, you have to let the engineers make mistakes. Otherwise, they're not going to learn. I actually had a situation a week or so ago where I gave the team some, you know, I gave them some of my context of like, hey, these are some things I've done in the past. And they said, oh, we want to go a different way. And I was like, yeah, go for it. And then two weeks later, they were like, Okay, we think we want to try your thing. And how effective is that versus if I had said, no, you're doing my way. And then the entire time they're using my way, they're just bitter about it. Right. So previously, I definitely, like, again, like I said at a, a previous company that shall remain unnamed, I uh, was very rigid with Scrum. And in the back of my mind, while I could cover my ass and I could see the documents and the spreadsheets and prove to everybody, you know, and we had it all well-tracked and that just gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling to have everything really well-tracked. I just, in the back of my mind knew that I was creating a culture of just burning out these engineers, you know, and we would every six months, somebody, somebody would leave the company because they just, you know, they were just tired of it. And I didn't blame them because I, I felt like this is a very stressful environment and I'm just managing my peace by keeping it all organized and covering my ass and keeping myself safe. But it still pained me to see that like my people weren't enjoying it. They weren't enjoying work. They were just doing it for the paycheck. And so that was that role. When I left that company and I moved to another one, I was like, you know, let me hit the reset button on some of my things that I'm doing. Let me see if I can tie some of this back to a set of values that I care about. And that's when when I left that company, that was where I really started to like think through a lot of this stuff a lot more and starting to try things and pilot things with teams. I'd go to a team and I'd say, hey, I've got this like, crazy idea for a process change. I just want to try it. One of the things, I, a, mo- a framework that I use with my engineers all the time is the idea of tweaks versus grenades, right? Like we have a process and there is some sort of ceiling of efficiency with that process just because of the mechanics of human beings and psychology and all that. There's just like that process is only going to be so effective. So you tweak it until you think you've hit that ceiling. And if you're not happy with that ceiling, you go, okay, we got to toss a grenade and just start from scratch with something new. And granted, that grenade might hit you down a couple rungs, right, from where you were. But the idea is that if you go back into tweak mode, that you could actually get it even higher than you were before, right? 
And so I think like little ideas like that sort of came to me when I left that company of, you know, I was in cover my asthma and I was able to sort of use my imagination a little bit more, get creative with it, try different things, see what stuck, write down the thing in my own, like, you know, in my own documentation, like keeping track of these things so that I can keep being a better manager when I go from company to company, company, and even naming these frameworks or, or like putting imagery to them. I've been a Photoshop guy since I was like 13 years old. And so I'll like create all sorts of graphics and things to sort of explain this. Because people are different learners and they're not all auditory learners. Some of them are visual learners. And so it's like, okay, I got to figure out how to take my context and try to give it to other people because maybe there's something here that we could all use, you know? But also being humble about it. What you're using may work at a previous company and then you take it to a new one. And again, you just sort of show the group and you say, maybe this is a good idea. And again, they maybe they try it, maybe they don't, right? Absolutely, man. I love it. I think um, a ton of great points in there. And I think, um, you know, this is such a, such a, big field in terms of how projects are run. And uh, we haven't even covered other methodologies. I mean, we, heck, we haven't even really you know, scratched the surface, but I think some of your views are fantastic. And what I'm going to walk away from the episode personally, when I'm thinking about what you said was, you mentioned people want Scrum to drive autonomy and accountability. And I listened, you said, you need to give away control to lead to better autonomy and accountability. And it's interesting because you cannot succeed without one and the other. If you want scrum to work, give away control. And like you mentioned about piloting ideas and letting the team run with it and then kind of determine, Hey, I maybe we'll try your idea without giving away that control. That would have never let that team to actually grow. And yeah. Learn. Have your scrum master be an agile coach instead of like an integral part of the team that cannot be removed. Right. And once they get the team into a good place, like I'm sure there is another problem that they can go solve somewhere <laughs> else in the company. Right. Absolutely. It's invariable. Awesome, man. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your views. If someone wants to get in touch uh, on anything you said on the podcast or in general, what's a good way of getting a hold of you? LinkedIn, Twitter, any other avenues? Yeah, LinkedIn's the best. I've got a funky name, so I'm not too hard to find. <laughs> and uh, I will do my best to check my LinkedIn messaging. Uh, so okay, I get a lot, but that's probably the best bet. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you do. We'll, we'll put that LinkedIn uh, URL in the show notes so people can find you and follow up with you if they have any questions. But again, thanks for being on. That's it for this episode. We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Until then, I always ask for two things. One, if you like this podcast episode, if it you know, provide any value, share it with somebody else. That's how it's been growing and it's been fantastic. Uh, secondly, if you want me to talk about a specific topic, let me know. I'll do my best in finding someone to do that. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.